Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. One of the president's ride-or-die defenders is legal advisor Jenna Ellis. It's such a political prosecution and a political persecution. Quote. This to me is a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. It's revisionist originalism. Tolerance just isn't a two-way street with the Democrats. And I think that tells you all we need to know. Newsmax contributor and former legal counsel to President Trump. Jenna Ellis. Well, good morning, good morning, and we're starting off with uh, one of my favorite people in Washington, D.C., and there are actually few, few people that I would consider my favorites in Washington, D.C., but certainly uh, one of the tippy-top is uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, who is just doing such a stellar job on all of these select committees, and uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, uh, good morning, and, um, you know, let's start with the, thank you, and uh, let's start with the weaponization of the federal government uh, select subcommittee, because Mm -hmm. there was a uh, internal report that the FTC actually demanded that Twitter and Elon Musk hand over internal files, including a list of journalists that were given access yeah. to the Twitter yeah. files. This is this is really, really contrary to First Amendment protections here. No kid, and this is a direct attack on the First Amendment, freedom of the press. Uh, they 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 sent like once Elon Musk buys buys Twitter. There's like 12 letters that come in in a matter of like three months' time. And the first letter that came out after the first Twitter file, the very first question in that particular letter was, who are the journalists you're communicating with? We know you've talked to four. They named those names, including Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who were our witnesses in the hearing last week. They named those four, but they say, who else have you talked to? And oh, by the way, have you checked their background? Like, that is frightening that you see a federal agency in the Biden administration going to a private company and asking those types of questions about people in the press. But that's exactly what happened. And our, our staff did great work and put this report out highlighting that and, and a bunch of other crazy things they were asking Elon Musk about in, uh, since he's purchased Twitter. That is absolutely preposterous. And, you know, what kind of background were they looking for? I mean, as if like Elon Musk was supposed to make them get, you know, security clearances and have the government (laughs) vet them before they could hand over files of a private company. I mean, this sounds almost like they're admitting that this that Twitter was just being used as an arm of the government if they're suggesting that somehow they have to have, you know, government security clearances before handing over some of these files to journalists. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I don't know. That, that, of course, the excuse the FTC will use is Twitter before Musk purchased uh, the, the company uh, like 11, 12 years ago had, had been put under a consent decree and was operating under that because of some things they did previously. So they were using that as the excuse to to go after um, Elon Musk. Uh, but I think you've got to step back and look at it in context, too. <clears throat> so think about last week. In a 48-hour time frame last week, you had Chuck Schumer write a letter to Rupert Murdoch and say, Fox, don't, don't, don't let Fox put on TV video footage of, of January 6th in the Capitol that Tucker Carlson had. Then we issue our report where we highlight what the FTC was doing, asking about Elon Musk and his communications with journalists. Two of those journalists, uh, journalists testify the very next day, last Thursday. Two of them testify. And, and while they're, they're testifying in front of Congress, Democrat members of Congress Ask these two journalists, who are your sources? That all happened in a 48-hour time frame where you see Chuck Schumer, the Biden administration, and Democrat members of the Congress directly assaulting freedom of the press and the First Amendment. And that is why, if, if, if that's not the weaponization of government, then I don't know what is. And that's why we have this select committee 
to to dig into this, get the facts on the table, and then move to propose legislation and use the appropriation process to limit these agencies' ability to go after the American people. And as well, you should. I mean, this is such important work, um, Congressman Jim Jordan. And you know, I think that this subcommittee, especially over the last uh, two years that we've seen in the aftermath of how the pretext of January 6 was used um, to to silence any sort of election integrity efforts, and then of course over the course of uh, President Trump's full term in office, how we've seen Mm -hmm. uh, the weaponization of government. So, you know, what is some potential legislation that could even be effective when you have a Democrat run and Biden administration DOJ that is also completely off the rails and in my view is, you know, subverting constitutional protections as well? Well, here's a simple one that we sort of picked up when when, when the whole uh, Trump-Russia baloney was going on. You know, if, if the FBI is going to interview someone, then maybe they, there should be an audio tape of that interview. Because I happen to think if, you, if they'd have done that versus this 302 where they take notes and then use those notes as, as the basis for whether they would press, a charge, uh, press charges against someone, um, I happen to think if, they'd have, if there had been an audio tape of the interview with Michael Flynn, maybe all that doesn't happen to Michael Flynn. Maybe they don't go after him like they did. Maybe another common sense thing is that I think is worth examining that just sort of comes to mind now. We're all familiar with the, with the now famous letter from the 51 former intel officials, and that letter came out literally October 19th, two weeks before the 2020 presidential race. And of course, you had that now famous line in there, which said, "You know, this uh, the Biden laptop story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation." Well, baloney. It was it was all accurate, but that's what they said. Uh, those 51 people, my guess is they all still have a security clearance. Now, maybe there's a valid reason for some of that, or maybe for some of them to have one. I don't know, and I'm, I'm willing to entertain that. But, but, you know, they've all been out of government now for a number of years and yet still have a security clearance. Is, is that necessarily a good thing? It might be. It might not. But I think that's something we should look at and, and see if there needs to be legislation to deal with that. And then, of course, just as importantly as the appropriations process, the power of the purse that the legislative branch has, and some of these agencies who are doing things, uh, I mean, we should put in no no agency can 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 use funds to set up any kind of disinformation governance board like the Department of Homeland Security attempted to do last year. So there's things we can do there, too. And that's all going to be part of our investigative work as we uh, as we proceed. Well, and, and all of that sounds really great. And uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, you also mentioned uh, the January 6th videos that were given by Speaker McCarthy mm-hmm. to Tucker Carlson. And, um, you know, a lot of people have asked me, and I would love to get your um, opinion on this, uh, why hasn't that just all been released to the public so that you have other journalists as well that can go yeah. in and review this um, so that, you know, it doesn't just kind of come out piecemeal depending on what the powers that be at, at Fox News will allow for Tucker Carlson to present? Yeah, I think it will be. And I, th- I think the speaker's indicated that I support the speaker in releasing that. You know, now, of course, the yes. Democrats, you know, they're like, well, they don't want the American people to see, see the, the truth and see, you know, be tra- you know, they don't want the government to be transparent, which is which is, I think, maybe the most alarming thing, because I, I thought we were supposed to be a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So let we the people see what in the heck happened. Uh, the idea that, that, that the speaker McCarthy certainly agrees with that and gave, gave this information to, to Fox. But I do think it's going to be a broader circulation now and more journalists. And frankly, just the American people will be able to go look at this and access it like they should be. After all, it's their capital. It's the people's capital. They should be able to see what happened on that day. 
Yeah, 100%. And uh, like you, I support Speaker McCarthy in turning uh, all of that footage over. And, um, you know, it was so frustrating. And you and I have talked about this at length, uh, about how the select committee uh, then uh, over the last two years on January 6th, that of course now thankfully has has, uh, concluded, and how they didn't allow for someone like you or Jim Banks or anyone who's a genuine Republican to sit on that committee and ask questions and cross-examine and have access uh, to these videos over the course of the last two years. And, you know, from a from a due process standpoint as well, um, I think that that's been infuriating to the American people to see a lot of these uh, plea agreements for uh, some of these January 6th defendants to go through. And now um, there are reports that their own defense attorneys weren't allowed access to possibly exculpatory materials. I mean, should that have been and could that have been prevented if someone mm. like you would have sat on the select committee for January 6th? Well, you'd like to think so. Uh, and if that information was kept from, from defense attorneys, uh, obviously that is wrong and not, not consistent with our Constitution. But in, in, you know, when you think about what we've seen from the left, what we've seen from this administration and the attacks on the First Amendment in general and just due process and, and this double standard concept that, that now seems to be so clear, uh, it probably shouldn't surprise us. But uh, yeah, let's 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 hope we could have corrected that. But uh, I think now with that that information getting out there, that that can be uh, that's just going to be good for the country. That everyone gets to look. We all know if people did something wrong that day, they should be held accountable, and they are, they they are being. But there there's there's also a, a a full transparency that is good for the country to 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 have access to, and that's why I I so support what the speaker did, and the, and the fact that this information is getting out there. Yeah, 100%. And there was a report also uh, yesterday in Breitbart that Senator Ted Cruz is joining in on the House uh, weaponization of the federal government subcommittee investigation into the FTC. Uh, How does this um, help you or and and how does the partnership with the Senate uh, impact what you're doing in terms of uh, legislation that may be forthcoming? Well, we certainly welcome uh, Senator Cruz's help and and, um you know, you, you, you again, you think about what the FTC did. <clears throat> as soon as Elon Musk buys Twitter, talks about the fact that he purchased a crime scene, talks about the fact that they're not going to get back to the First Amendment, um, and we, we have these Twitter files come out where we see what in the heck was going on there. It's truly unbelievable. Again, written not by Republicans, but these stories were written by Democrats. Matt Taibbi, Michael Schellenberger, Democrats, Barry Weiss, these are all former Democrats. Um, and, and respected members of the, of the press, but they believe in the in, in the First Amendment. So, the, and then to see pressure from Democrat members of Congress, left wing groups going to Lena Khan at the FTC and saying, "You need to go after Elon Musk. You need to use this consent decree, which has been in place from like 2011 or 12, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, you need to use this." as a way to go after Elon Musk, because now he's actually fully embraced the First Amendment and, and, and talking about what was going on there. And we like that censorship. And then to have her do it. Now, remember this, too. Lena Khan, chair of the FTC, you know who she worked for before she went and chaired the FTC? She worked for Jerry Nadler and House Democrats on the Judiciary Committee. So this is the, this is the individual now running the FTC that the left encouraged to do something, and she did it. Twelve letters in a three-month time span where she is asking a private company, who are the journalists you're talking to, naming people personally in, that, uh, in, in, those, in those questions. Um, this is why we, we, we're so glad Senator Cruz is, is, is working on this as well. Uh, and we're going to, like I said, we're going to make sure we get all the facts on the table.
Yeah, and and that th- this is why I think this committee is so important, and I think the most important. And I'm so grateful for all of the time that uh, you spend to to share with our listeners here what's going on. And you know, speaking of weaponization of government, um, just from a personal standpoint, I would love to see um, in the context of you know everything that has gone on in the last six years, um, an investigation as well into what's going on with some of the state bars as well that have gone after oh. 110 or more of. Uh, the Trump attorneys for simply um, filing election challenges and uh, how the weaponization of coming after our licenses um, has happened by a lot of these Democrat funded um, super PACs. And, you know, and and their motivation has been very clearly and openly that they're trying to destroy the livelihood of anyone who represented Trump. And their intention, of course, is to discourage Uh, having any competent representation, if your name is Donald Trump, if you are a Republican candidate for office, or if you have any sort of election challenge whatsoever. So, you know, just putting that out there that, you know, some of these other things that are clearly weaponization of government agencies and entities that are uh, being, you know, totally weaponized by the left to, uh, to quell uh, due process concerns and also free speech. I mean, you know, some of these things are just absolutely ridiculous. Um, but so what yeah. What else? And, and go ahead, yeah, if you want to comment on that. Well, I was just going to say, Jen, and it's all designed to chill the speech of others. They don't want anyone, they want everyone to keep their head down, no one to speak out. So we're going to make it as painful for anyone who does. We're going to come after them. If you're a, if you're a, a conservative group, they're going to come after your advertisers. If you're a lawyer, they're going to come. They're going to use the bar association. They're going to come after you. There, it's all designed. This is, you know, when they went after parents a year and a half ago, it was all designed so parents would just be quiet, not show up at school board meetings, not speak out against the woke curriculum, not speak out against some of the mask mandates and everything else. It's all designed to keep people in place and chill First Amendment protected free speech, and it's. Um, like you say, it's it's just wrong. That's why we we got to have people like you who are speaking out against this and using your platform to let the let the country know what's going on. Yeah, well, thank you so much, and you know I'll continue to speak truth, and I know that you will as well. And we all really sincerely appreciate the work that you and the other members of uh, this select committee are are doing. And um, you know I would encourage everyone thank to you. follow. The, uh, the Twitter page, also follow uh, Representative Jim Jordan on Twitter and also um, the House GOP on Twitter so that you can keep um, apprised of what is going on. And these are the things that actually uh, our government is supposed to do. So thank you, Representative Jim you Jordan, bet. for actually using the power of government for good instead of evil. We uh, really, really sincerely appreciate you. So thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you, Jenna. Take care. Thank you. All right. Well, we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Don't go anywhere. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And uh, Congressman Jim Jordan was just with us in the last segment. And so if you missed that, definitely go to AFR.net and click on Jenna Ellis in the morning where you can hear the podcast of this uh, radio program. If you missed any of the interviews, you can also go back and listen to all of the shows that we have had. So uh, definitely check out AFR.net. You can also email us here at the program, Jenna at AFR.net. And you can follow us on social media 
on Twitter at Jenna Ellis AM. And we always love your comments and feedback when, um, of course, you know, we have so many great guests that we haven't opened up the phone lines in a while. Hopefully we will get to that next week. But uh, until then, you can always send us an email, drop us a line on Twitter. Uh, But joining me now is our good friend of the show, Pedro Gonzalez, who, of course, is the political editor of the Chronicles magazine and runs his own a really great Substack and has had um, quite a few uh, really in-depth um, pieces on investigative journalism. And so I would highly encourage you to follow Pedro's work. And uh, Pedro, let's uh, let's start first with, um, you know, Representative Jordan just commented on the Twitter files and how the Select Committee on the Weaponization of Government is uh, is really trying to get to the bottom of how um, the government interacted with Twitter and was actually asking them to reveal some of their sources. I mean, this is just so antithetical to the First Amendment. And um, to me, I think that, uh, you know, Elon Musk has done such a great service to our country by providing transparency in this regard. You know, Jenna, thanks so much for having me. I think that the sad fact of the Twitter files is that it just confirms what we had all suspected for so long. And it's difficult because that should matter. It should matter that when the media was saying that Twitter is not censoring conservatives, I mean, like you can go back and see one headline after another, one study after another produced by some professor of media at some prestigious school who concludes that his analysis found no discrepancy in the way that conservatives and liberals were treated on Twitter. And it's just not, all of it was a lie. We know now for a fact that not only was Twitter censoring conservatives and people on the right, really just anybody who kind of dared to go out of bounds of the authorized discourse, but also that you had this kind of incestuous relationship between the between basically the public and the private sectors where the government would basically work with Twitter and Twitter would work with the government on cracking down on, on certain uh, discussions and topics. And so obviously the question is, what now? Will anyone be held accountable? And I, I honestly can't see it. Uh, basically, I think that accountability would have to start, unfortunately, with, with I think, a Republican administration, a Republican president, because it's just as, as much as these investigations can reveal and bring to light, um, it's just really, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, where do they go? By right. DOJ, right? So it, right. it's just, it, it's kind of, it, it's kind of destined for a dead end, unless you have a Republican in the White House. And I think I'm not saying that I'm saying that as someone who often says we care way too much about, you know, the presidential election. And and that kind of makes us very narrow, uh, narrows our focus and we miss all these other things. But this is one of those cases where if you would want this to go from investigation to something happening and someone getting punished, I think you'd actually need uh, a change in, in the administration because otherwise, I mean, this is, this is going to end up in the hands of someone like Merrick Garland, you know? Right. And we've, we've, of course, seen that, you know, Biden's DOJ is not particularly concerned about enforcing the law. Um, you know, it, it, they're 
more particularly concerned about enforcing their own brand of politics. And that, of course, um, can only change when you have someone um, who is a better uh, chief law enforcement officer in the White House. Um, Of course, Congressman Jordan suggested that um, what Congress can do is enact some legislation, and hopefully uh, we will get that outcome from this Congress, um, even with the current composition of the Senate. But, you know, that remains to be seen. And, um, you know, Pedro, that's that's actually a great segue into... um, um, the, the topic that I really wanted to discuss with you, which is, of course, the 2024 campaign. Um, Chip Roy, a, a, a congressman from Texas who's been on the show, friend of the show, I came out yesterday saying that he is um, declaring his support and endorsing Governor Ron DeSantis out of Florida, and uh, who hasn't yet even announced. And um, and I think that you're you're starting to see kind of this turn and this shift um, to a lot of people that are openly endorsing Governor DeSantis, even. Um, preemptively before he announces. But this has also led to uh, Donald Trump filing an ethics complaint in the state of Florida against Ron DeSantis because the Florida law requires that a state elected official has to resign before running for federal office, which Florida has historically changed that law in the past and they re-implemented it in 2018. I've no doubt they're going to change that for Ron DeSantis. But um my my view of that particular um, action from the Trump side is that that's just going to give great cover for the Florida legislature to say, wait a minute, we we want to allow our uh, our elected officials to choose to run for federal office if they deserve. And that's just going to give them cover. But, um, you know, where do you see this fight between Trump and DeSantis headed? I think it's going to get really bloody. Uh, it's going to get way worse. I, I think there are a lot of things going on here. And I'm I'm saying all of this as someone who started writing about politics because of Trump and in defense of Trump. And I defended him at every turn on every issue until really early 2020 when I, I, I didn't go as far as Ann Coulter did in terms of, you know, like the, the way that she, you know, didn't pull any punches in, in the way that she talked about Trump. I, I always kind of tried to qualify my criticisms, but basically in early 2020, I just couldn't ignore the disconnect between the rhetoric and reality, and in particular on issues like immigration. And um, so I'm, I'm writing this as someone who, again, got into politics really because of Trump and to defend him. But now looking at this campaign and everything that's happened really in, in the last part of his administration, um, basically, I don't think Trump has really learned anything from his mistakes and the things that undermine his administration. And it seems like he's doubling down on everything. And as part of this kind of like death spiral, he's just alienating allies and punching to the right constantly. And, you know, there's this whole kind of narrative that's forming now. Well, this is just 2016 again. He did the same thing to Ted Cruz and blah, blah, blah. Ron DeSantis is not Ted Cruz. Ron DeSantis Mm -hmm. is the most effective conservative governor in the country who has actually taken kind of policies that I guess you could characterize as Trumpian, but they're actually to the right of Trump in many ways. And he's actually gone from the stage of just talking about things uh, to implementing them. You know, like recently he moved to strip the liquor license of a major hotel in Florida because it had hosted a drag show with kids in the audience. That's that is. That is an enormous step in this direction, in the kind of the populist right direction. That Trump never did anything that came close to that. 
he talked about it, sure, but he never did it. And so basically what you have is a guy who's running for president who's running for president by running to the left of the, the most popular conservative government in the country. Uh, and and it, it, again, people are saying, well, this is what you can expect. It worked in 2016. You've got defections left and right. Uh, and not just from Chip Roy, you know, because the people pe- uh, the, people have said stuff about Chip Roy, like, well, he's, you know, I think he was like friends with Liz Cheney at one point or something like that. And therefore, you can't. You, because <laughs> that's irrelevant. You know, you shouldn't. Yeah. Well, right. That's, that's not. But but at the same time, you have these really Trumpian defections like Lou Barletta. A lot of right. people miss this. But Lou Barletta was one of the earliest Trump supporters, one of the earliest endorsers. Barletta of course, from from Pennsylvania, uh, he, he ran for governor. He was part yes. of the Pennsylvania state legislature. Yeah. He was yep. in the Pennsylvania House, and he and he was one of the earliest endorsers of Trump when it was not popular to do that. And um, Trump actually passed. It, think, I mean, this this is really, in a nutshell, kind of summarizes your question. Um, after being one of the earliest pe- people to stick his neck out to endorse Trump, uh, Barletta considered Trump for a job uh, leading transportation. But he passed uh, Barletta over for, you know who, right? Elaine Chow. <laughs> Talk about draining the swamp. You pass over your earliest endo- one of your earliest endorsers and supporters for Elaine Chow uh, to, to be transportation secretary. But then Barletta, because he's so loyal, he basically sacrifices his seat in the Pennsylvania House because Trump is encouraging him to, to challenge Bob Casey for his Senate seat. Barletta loses. And then attempts to run for governor, and Trump, what does what does Trump do? Instead of endorsing Barletta, uh, who again gave, basically gave up his political career for Trump, he endorses Doug Mastriano. And then Barletta is still so loyal that he concedes and endorses Mastriano, even after he publicly says Trump made a mistake. He still swallows his pride and does it. And then finally, you know, just recently he endorsed DeSantis, Barletta. And the response from Trump people, like I'm talking about his influence, so I'm not talking about the average person that's listening to your show. I'm talking about the, the, the influencers, the, the campaign people. They all jumped on him. This is going to happen more and more, and it's going to get really ugly, and no one is out of bounds, not even Trump's earliest and staunchest supporters. Wow. And, you know, and, and I think that that's um, a really great example, uh, you know, Lou Barletta and someone like that, who really was, um, you know, incredibly loyal to Trump. And and of course, you know, Trump isn't running as the incumbent. There isn't a loyalty pledge that anyone signed, um, you know, myself included as a former, you know, Trump advisor and, and attorney for him. Um, you know, I mean, I can even say that personally, but the, the fact that you do have so many influencers, whether or not they work directly for Trump's campaign or not, who are now openly calling people like Lou Barletta or Chip Roy rhinos, like Republican in name only, just because they have the audacity to support someone other than Trump, I think is going to ultimately be a mistake because more people who want the freedom to be persuaded to continue to support Trump, if they aren't and they choose to support DeSantis, that should be their free and fair choice. Now, we can argue the merits all day, and we do on this show kind of all day, about um, you know DeSantis versus Trump and calling balls and strikes fairly. And people are going to come down on different, side of this, different sides of this, and they're going to have different opinions on whether they think you know Trump can win the general or not, whether they think DeSantis can win the primary or not. And all of those things, though, are still within the bounds of what we the people as the individual yeah. voters want to select and support and and you're right Pedro you know for people like you and I that 
you know, are kind of on Twitter more than the average bear. And unfortunately, that's just true for the nature of media and our, our industry, right? And I, yeah. I love and hate Twitter yeah. at the same time. Um, yeah. You know, we are seeing these, these influencers that have gone so far as to suggest, um, so for example, just for me personally, who, you know, I mean, I, I'm in, in independent media. I have endorsed no one in the primary. I don't plan to. I have amplified uh, Donald Trump's good points. I have amplified Ron DeSantis as the governor of Florida. Um, and I've amplified, you know, other candidates who have declared like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. And yet you have some Trump-aligned influencers that have gone so far as to suggest that I am basically, um, and I won't even say the term on Christian family-friendly radio, but have basically just suggested that I have... Um, you know, gone out of my way to basically, you know, sleep around with campaigns, right? Which is just so disgusting. And I don't think that, and and the term was more vile than that. Um, But I really don't think that at the end of the day, that type of rhetoric is going to win over any actual Trump supporters, and certainly not anyone who is considering, you know, as a moderate supporter as well. Yeah. And this is going to happen over and over again. Um, And there's always a kind of, again, this is, this must be so uh, bizarre for a lot of people who aren't on Twitter to hear, but a lot of the narratives that eventually end up trickling into the mainstream, unfortunately start on Twitter. And so that's relevant to this because whenever there's a kind of defection or a critical remark from someone who previously was very, either pro-Trump or, or Trumpian in their, in their politics kind of defects or something, then the narrative becomes that person was always a rhino. And so I'll give you another example. There was a story in Axios recently about Matt Rosendale. I, I don't know if you are familiar with Rosendale. He's, he's, a, he's a very good Republican in Montana, uh, was one of the only Republicans, I think maybe the only one who, who uh, issued a kind of principled objection to the federalization of Juneteenth. And uh, he's just he's very solid. As soon as the war in Ukraine started, he came out against U.S. aid and involvement. Just very solid guy. Um, and he was one of the 20 Republicans who stood up to Kevin McCarthy. And uh, he was the one in the picture that went viral where uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is holding up a phone to him. Mm-hmm. And she said it was Trump calling and Matt Rosendale didn't take the call. And um and, you know, people kind of I, I I was shocked because my like the way that I saw that was like this, they're trying to humiliate Rosendale for basically standing up to Kevin McCarthy when Trump is telling them to stand down. And so the so the spin initially was, no, 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 no. it wasn't it wasn't an effort to humiliate him. We we're you know, Trump really just wanted to talk to him, blah, blah. Well, according to this report in Axios. And by the way, Trump loves talking to liberal media. So I know that you've been like, you know, a lot of people have been told that they should just write off these publications as fake news. But no one likes to talk more to Politico, Axios, NBC, <laughs> The Washington Post and The New York Times than Trump and his campaign. And so according That's to so Axios, true. Trump is actually really angry at Matt Rosendale because he didn't take his call. And wow. now there's this whole thing that's kind of emerging where um, there's a, a Democrat whose seat is going to be up. Um this is and all... tester. Yeah, and, 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 we, and we are already out of time here, Ed, but I mean, there's so much more, Pedro Gonzalez, uh, that we could talk about, including, you know, the, the now divide as well between what um, the 
the candidates and even the potential candidates like DeSantis are saying about Ukraine compared to the split with all of the establishment hawkish Republicans. But we'll have to save that one for another day. So uh, we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. But everyone, follow Pedro Gonzalez on Twitter. Also follow his his Substack. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Thank you. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. And ending this Thursday morning on a really positive note, a Kern County judge in Bakersfield, California, has awarded more than $3.6 million to attorneys who represented Bakes. Bakersfield baker Kathy Miller after she was sued for refusing to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple. This is according to a ruling recently made public. So a total of more than $3.6 million in attorney's fees was awarded to LaMondry and Jonna LLP. And uh, Chuck LaMondry joins me now. And uh, full disclosure, I know Chuck LaMondry very well because uh, he was my co-counsel, or rather I was his co-counsel in uh, representing Presenting Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church in that very significant win. So I know that uh, Chuck LaMondry and Paul Jonna have been excellent attorneys fighting for freedom and liberty in this country. And Chuck, congratulations on this really amazing award. So uh, tell me about it. Thank you, Jen. I, I appreciate it and uh, glad to be on your show again. Um, it is a great uh, victory. It's a culmination of uh, a lot of work by a, a lot of people over five years. A lot of good people uh, praying for us. We had uh, a good judge. We had a good venue. We had great clients. We had a good case. So we had all the ingredients of making for uh, a big win. But, you know, that doesn't always pan out that way if you're in the the wrong venue with the wrong judge. But in this case, uh, justice was served. Um, you want me to go back into history a little bit of the case to how we got to this point, or how would you like to proceed? Yeah, absolutely, because I think um, a lot of people aren't aren't totally familiar uh, with her specific case, you know, more so masterpiece and maybe, you know, some of those distinctions. Sure. Uh, Kathy Miller is a devout evangelical uh, Christian woman who has her uh, bakery in Bakersfield, California, and in uh, August 2017, a lesbian couple came in to order uh, a wedding cake, and uh, she uh, told them as uh, kindly as she could that she could not uh, make a wedding cake for a same-sex couple in good conscience because of her sincerely held religious beliefs uh, based on uh, the Bible, but that she could refer them to uh, another uh, very good uh, baker in Bakersfield who happened to be a lesbian herself who would be happy to make the cake, but that was not good enough for this lesbian couple, they immediately took to social media, and literally within hours, uh, our client's parking lot was full of uh, news media, and they were besieged with all kinds of uh, negative and harassing uh, emails on the social uh, media, and their computers were um, caused to lock up with gay pornography being uh, sent them. It was a terrible situation, so bad that one-third of her workforce, six employees, quit within uh, two weeks of this happening because they couldn't take the harassment and, and vilification and actual, you know, threats of physical violence uh, and then uh, physical damage that they experienced as a result of, uh, of this, in terms of cars being broken into, their computers being stolen, things of that nature. 
so it was uh, about as bad a situation as, as you could imagine. But uh, they uh, persevered uh, because of their religious beliefs. They felt that they could not, um, you know, surrender to uh, an, an agenda that went against how they understood uh, the Bible uh, commanded them as, as Christians to view and honor, you know, marriage basically as a sacrament between a man and a woman. And uh, nonetheless, the lesbian couple, after taking to social media and doing what they could to destroy our client's business, went to the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, uh, which is supposed to uh, litigate cases if they find a genuine situation where there's been a discrimination against someone based upon a protected classification such as uh, race, uh, gender, religion as one of the original things that's supposed to be protected. And then in more recent years, they've added uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. And uh, instead of uh, seeking any way to protect our clients' religious uh, beliefs, which are uh, stated uh, in the statute they're supposed to enforce, uh, they... Uh, completely took up the cause of the lesbian uh, couple and sought to force our client to make the wedding cakes for uh, same-sex couples. And they did that by filing uh, just around Christmas time uh, in 2017 a petition for a preliminary injunction to either make our, our client make the cake or, or shut her business uh, down. And um, what a good judge in that case who has since uh, retired, but he de uh, denied the preliminary uh, injunction and wrote uh, a strong decision at the time that this was a form of uh, protected uh, speech. He didn't even need to reach the um, free exercise of religion argument because there's sufficient cases stating that if you engage in uh, expressive speech through some form of artistry, like, you know, making a painting or, or writing a song or, of course, a poetry, uh, anything in writing, uh, that should be protected. Someone should not be able to force you to uh, speak a message that you disagree with. And that's what they're asking our client to do by engaging in her artistic expression. She's extremely uh, talented in the way she makes these uh, beautiful, uh, elaborate wedding cakes. You have to see pictures of them. Uh, yeah, and to, you know, uh, Chuck, it, it. It, it reminds me of uh, Jack Phillips in the Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop case, of course, which, um, you know, that that case ultimately uh, was, was at the Supreme Court almost around the same time or shortly before, you know, that case came down before this was um, filed, as you said, in, in uh, Christmas of 2017. So this would have been shortly after the Masterpiece That's Cake right. Shop case came down. So um, how, if, if any way did the outcome in this case kind of track the masterpiece cake shop case because it seems like with that you know that precedent um i think a lot of us who saw that opinion um of course with the composition of the supreme court then being different uh were very disappointed that that was a very narrow opinion um not in terms right. of how many justices of course, voted in favor of it, but because really it was targeted toward the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, which is a modern day star chamber um, in Colorado, you know, my home state, um, and, and really didn't reach a lot of the other concerns that some of these other cases were tracking. So how, if any way, did that a case precedent uh, play into to your case here? Yeah, that's a very good point, uh, Jenna, because when I argue the preliminary injunction, I think it was like December 2017 or early 20, 
2018, I think it was filed in late 2017, and then I argued in early 2018. Uh, I had actually been present in court when the Colorado case was argued, uh, Jack Phillips' masterpiece uh, case, uh, case. I admitted to the United States Supreme Court, so I was able to sit up front and kind of watch the justices, and I clearly got the read. They were not happy with the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission. In fact, uh, Justice Good. Kennedy got kind of red-faced uh, when he said you, you were not uh, respectful of uh, Jack Phillips' uh, religious beliefs. So we kind of figured that that would be a victory for him, and I actually said that in oral argument uh, in this Tasty's case, cake case, which uh, took place, uh, the hearing shortly after the Supreme Court uh, hearing. Of course, we didn't have the decision in hand yet. I predicted that he would win. We didn't know the basis. And then when the decision came out uh, from the Supreme Court, you're absolutely correct. It was decided on, on relatively narrow grounds that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had acted in a hostile fashion towards Jack Phillips' uh, religious uh, beliefs, referring to Christians as Nazis and using other pejorative uh, language with reference to his sincerely held religious beliefs, which uh, even some of the liberal justices found untenable, certainly Justice uh, Kennedy did. So he had a Jack Phillips majority decision to savior, but it wasn't readily translatable to our case or other cases. Now, we argued that the uh, Department of Fair Employment and Housing in Kathy Miller's case was also acting in a hostile uh, manner in the way they were aggressively persecuting her, not just prosecuting her, but uh, they were not respectful of her religious beliefs when they did uh, depose her in the subsequent uh, civil lawsuit after they lost to the preliminary injunction. They still filed a, a lawsuit against her saying the preliminary injunction was, just like it sounds, kind of a first-phase preliminary matter, and they still reserved the right to do a full-blown litigation, which they did, even after the first judge found they violated her uh, free speech for the purposes of denying them injunctive uh, relief. But in the full-blown litigation, when they deposed her, you know, they were asking her questions like, well, how can you say that you're a Bible-believing Christian when you eat shellfish and the Bible says you should not <laughs> eat shellfish? You know, silly kind wow. of uh, questions uh, like that. And why why do you make wedding cakes for uh, heterosexuals that may have been living together uh, before they got married? Uh, isn't that hypocritical? Because that's considered a sin, too. You know, those kinds of things, uh, trying to uh, trap her. Uh, and she handled that uh, very well. And, uh, of course, those, those are improper questions because you're right. not supposed to inquire into the people's... The adequacy of a religion. Yeah. Exactly correct. You know, and the judge saw that. And we argued that that evoked hostility, hostility towards her. And the judge uh, didn't like it, but um, said that, you know, he was going to uh, accept them on the terms that they just got a little carried away, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't really mean to say that... They were hostile towards religious beliefs. So, but we didn't need to win on those grounds. And, and almost uh, the uh, masterpiece case, case, case uh, you, you almost have to um, show that there's something in writing, it seems to me, like they, or, or at least on the record verbally, where they used a hostile uh, language and kind of exposed their obvious uh, prejudice against uh, people of faith. And, of course, now knowing uh, that that would be a grounds to overturn the decision, these uh, government ideologues are much more careful generally in what they say and how they say it. They'll still go after you and try to put you out of business, <laughs> but they're not right. going to uh, right. make it well, as, and hopefully, uh, as obvious. 
Yeah, hopefully, um, Chuck LaMondry, we we are at least trending toward good precedent that is protecting uh, not only freedom of expression and all of those uh, First Amendment concerns, as the judge in California, you you rightly said, you know, we shouldn't even have to address the religious freedom issues. This should just be a creative license issue and also freedom of contract issue. And, you know, some of these things that people have been arguing um, just in not only in court, but even in the court of public opinion since uh, Masterpiece, but where do you think this is all trending now that we've had some very good outcomes, you know, like this one, um, the Masterpiece uh, case was at least a, a good opinion, even though, as we've discussed, it's too narrow, but now we have the 303 Creative case as well, and exactly. I listened to those arguments, um, and uh, the oral arguments, and I was absolutely shocked and so angry, frankly, that um, Justice Sotomayor actually suggested to that website designer, and you know, for those who don't remember, 303 Creative was also an Alliance Defending Freedom case uh, like Masterpiece that was a web designer that refused to use her services and talents to create a custom web uh, site for a same-sex couple. And Justice Sotomayor actually suggested that a photo of a same-sex couple had no inherent message and couldn't possibly be objectionable on any basis. And I'm sitting here thinking, right. are you kidding me? Like that's that's the same ridiculous argument as suggesting that pornography just as an image can't no, possibly I, I, be I, objectionable. I agree. And we had pictures, of course, of the same-sex uh, a couple uh, at their uh, wedding uh, ceremony uh, yeah, that we used in our tasteries case. And, uh, you know, one of the... Uh, members of the lesbian couple was obviously much more masculine, was short hair and dressed in uh, more of a suit, and the other one wore a, a wedding dress. So, I mean, they were kind of mimicking uh, what you would expect to see in a more traditional uh, mm-hmm. wedding with a heterosexual couple, and it was clearly sending the message that uh, a same-sex couple can be uh, every bit as, as much married in the same sense as a heterosexual couple, which we as uh, devout Christians take our faith seriously, simply cannot accept it, because you know, the Bible said God made them uh, man and male and female in his image and likeness, so you can't have two women or two men. But um, I, I think the photos did speak uh, legions in terms of the message that was trying to be sent by the same-sex couple, as did the wedding cake, which was the centerpiece of their reception, uh, they wheeled it out, and, and it uh, you know had the three tiers, and it was white. They tried to argue, well, it was more of a plain wedding cake. Uh, it wasn't very elaborate, so they tried to say it didn't really <laughs> speak that much. But you know, uh, you don't need to be particularly uh, articulate or eloquent in your speech to have it protected, <laughs> and that goes for right. uh, wedding cake. Where we draw the line, uh, Jenna, and the court accepted it is. Our client will sell a case cake, anything that's pre-made, to anyone who comes in, and they could use it for any purpose. That's up to them. Our client has nothing to do with that. The cake has been made. It's there. It's in the case. You can come in, and you can buy it, whoever you are. But if you're going to ask our client to make a custom cake and use her creative talents and abilities to send a message supporting a particular purpose she doesn't agree with. It's not just same-sex weddings. It could be something that, you know, is satanic. She said people ask for all kinds of things, or witchcraft, or sure. uh, something that <laughs> is uh, just otherwise, you know, uh, scandalous, like a, a deals with pornography. You would be surprised what people want for some of these, uh, yeah. um, when they have... Uh, 
yeah, there's, those, no, those, I'm trying those to kicks, think of the, the term when people are getting uh, married and, and uh, they um, have the, the parties beforehand and the women do it for the uh, oh for, yeah, like for, the yeah for, yeah like their bachelorette parties. And exactly. So but yes, well you know and and Chuck this stuff. yeah and you know and this um, this seems to be the same lines that were drawn um, in the masterpiece cake shop case and and make some really good distinctions here. So I really appreciate you joining today and congratulations on um, this incredible victory. And I think that it is incumbent upon attorneys to continue to take up these challenges and set good precedent and of course be praying for the outcome of the 303 creation case as well. So uh, this we are all out of time here on Jenna Ellis in the morning, but I will see you tomorrow for St. Patrick's Day. Have a great day.